With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, so much for my announced plans of doing a couple of Bible geeks every week. Uh, I am going to try to stick with that, but uh, so many other things are crowding in on me that it's hard to uh, to keep everything straight. Uh, and speaking of those things, I should point out a couple of things. I told you I have a couple of books that I am planning to write, um, Judaizing Jesus and uh, also uh, Christ Mythicism and Gospel Christology. I have those outlined uh, pretty uh, pretty exhaustively and have all my research materials. Going to have to read about 40 books or so, uh, but that's that should be a lot of fun. But I've, uh, as crazy as it sounds, I've added a third book I'm hoping to interest the publisher in called When Gospels Collide. And uh, I would take um, all the... Uh, contradictions one by one, not looking at the whole text uh, of each gospel, but just the uh, the trouble spots, uh, as some would say, and try to explain how each each one of them can be explained, though not explained away, and how they're valuable revelations of what was going on in the early Christianity. So I think that should be a lot of fun. The subtitle of it is uh, Contradictions as Revelations. Okay, um, also, John Loftus and I are far along now in the uh, collection of uh, essays uh, we're doing called um, The Varieties of Jesus Mythicism uh, by various authors, most of whom you, you know pretty well. Uh, and uh, it's Earl Doherty, Joe Atwill, a bunch of others. It's great stuff. Uh, so that's proceeding apace. And something else, uh, I know you've uh, not seen uh, any new Zarathustra Speaks columns from me in the last uh, months. Again, just incredible uh, pressures and overcommitment to things. Um, what's uh, happened there is uh, I, that will now be a uh, an offering on uh, on Patreon, uh, so you'll have to become a Patreon patron. Uh, of course, that can be just a buck a month, uh, but uh, that's where you would find it. And the one I just uh, put up today is called "Music of the Damned," and it has to do with um, with the. Uh, craze of, of uh, trying to erase and destroy the past uh, achievements of art and so forth that uh, don't quite go along with our particular values, uh, destroy the past and uh, so on. Well, that's I think that's a pretty good one. And uh, that's up if you want to check it out on Patreon. And I have an, the link for it on uh, on my uh, Facebook page. 
Okay, well, let's get into some long-delayed uh, questions here. And uh, the first one was from our buddy Lachlan uh, Cristiante, a pseudonym. Okay, uh, this is uh, in the nature of personal advice, but it's a Bible geek question, too. It says, my mother-in-law has serious cardiovascular and cognitive issues, as well as leaky gut syndrome, and I not only believe that she would benefit from going grain-free and alcohol-free, but I fear I may not have much more time left with her if she doesn't radically change her diet, which... Gener uh, which uh, Generally has, yeah, uh, 35 ounces of blush wine per night. Uh, her major objection is that wine is not only acceptable to Jesus, but that he transmuted water into wine and also said that his blood was wine. Is there any apologetic for teetotaling other than the idea of setting a good example? Um, let's see, the only other thing I can think of is a Bible verse that I originally thought um, was from Sherlock Holmes. Your life is not your own, uh, but I'm uh, uncertain I can speak to her about it without uh, uh, sounding like I'm twisting the text from the biblical context, which I believe is about the Holy Spirit, uh, to the Holmesian context, which I took to be about how corrosive suicide is to society. And with that in mind, what is the biblical view, view of suicide? I know in Confucianism, one's body is a gift from one's parents, therefore suicide is dishonorable to them. Uh, this seems to be more or less the same in Dante's Inferno, where it's violence, suicide is violence against God's property. But how firmly rooted is this uh, to the text of the New Testament? Well, on the, the booze question, it's funny, uh, my grandfather, I think, I've, I know I've told this a few times, but it is relevant here. My uh, grandfather uh, would uh, ask my, well, she wasn't my grandmother, his second wife, um, to, to make some wine, which she knew how to do. But being a staunch Southern Baptist, she didn't want to do it. But he would always win the argument by quoting this passage from the Gospel of John, that you're you know that she quotes your your mom mother-in-law um that uh, jesus was and his mom were at a wedding reception and it says that when the guests were well drunk uh the steward says to mary for some reason we're out of wine and uh he uh, she she then turns to jesus and says well what are you going to do about it and uh jesus says uh, mom, mom leave me out of this this. And she uh, knows uh, he can't resist her. And so he says to the steward of the feast, just you do whatever he says to do. And so Jesus, okay, here's what you do. You see those big, uh, those huge stone jars uh, that are in which water is uh, kept for ritual ablution, holy water, basically. Uh, I want uh, you, well, I want you to fill them with water right now and uh, then uh, take it and see. Uh, 
I don't say that's going to help with the wine, but okay, I'll do it. And so they do fill him up with quite a bit of water. And then he uh, ladles out some and tastes and says, son of a gun. Uh, this is the this is not only wine, but it's better than the stuff we've served up to now. And so there's plenty to uh, swill. And uh, it's funny. And my grandfather would point out that, you see, they're already tipsy. Uh, and even then, Jesus makes wine for them. What do you make of that? Well, she would go ahead. Uh, she knew when she was beat, and not not physically, and uh, would go and make the wine. Okay. So uh, that verse has probably come in handy for an awful lot of people. Uh, let's see. It, teetotaling. There are some satires of drunkenness. Like there's a hilarious one in the book of Proverbs that uh, compares the uh, the hangover and the dizziness and disorientation of somebody who's uh, just awakened from a drunken stupor and he feels like he's on the uh, the bridge of a ship uh, with, uh, with waves uh, knocking everything around. Uh, and of course he's not, but that's the way he feels. He's unsteady. And uh, what's he going to do? Well, as, as uh, um, Jack Torrance says in The Shining, hair the dog that bit me, Lord, my man, hair the dog that bit me. Uh, I shall seek another drink, he says. It's pretty funny. And of course, there is, um, uh, there's another thing here and there, but another place in Proverbs, it says that wine maketh the heart merry, and there's no condemnation there. It's almost a recommendation, and uh, but I think the uh, the thing is uh, like it doesn't sound like she's getting bombed, right? So uh, if she were, if that were the problem, I'd say, well, how about this passage in Ephesians? It says, "Be not drunk with wine, but rather filled with the Spirit." Okay, um, but you know, again, she's probably not uh, Otis Campbell. I think the the important passage in the Bible about this is in 1 Corinthians, where uh, Paul is discussing the rights of the believer and his freedom, and says, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is expedient. Right. Uh, that's I mean, that, that is so important. It should be obvious, but it isn't for everybody. Oh, what's that? You mean I can do as I will? Uh, that shall be the whole of the law, like Crowley said. Well, uh, yeah, but uh, you don't want to be an idiot. Right. I mean, there, there are good reasons not to do things. It's not just a question of God said not to do it. So I'm not going to do it. I mean, you don't need to go that far. Some things you just look at what happens to people when they do so. And so don't. that's the way the book of Proverbs deals with it. You really want this result? Well, don't do it then. I mean, it's in your own interest. You're not doing God any favor. You're doing yourself a favor. Uh, and uh, I I think that uh, really applies in her case. Yeah, she's free to do it as a Christian, sure. But uh, it, it, like you say, especially given her particular circumstance, uh, it, it's just foolish to, to keep doing it. Uh, and uh, it's not that it's inherently wrong and, and so on, but uh, it's, it's just uh, not the thing to do. It's not expedient for her. Uh, and so uh, I would uh, point that out. Where is it? Like in uh, chapters 9 or 10, somewhere in there in 1 Corinthians. Okay, what about suicide? It never really comes up. Uh, you can think of 
one of the versions of Saul's death way back, uh, the one in uh, at the end of First Samuel, where uh, he's the Israelites have lost the battle with the Philistines, with the what is it, the Amalekites, the Philistines? I can't remember now. Uh, but he knows he's about to be captured, and they're going to torture him and uh, make sport of him. You know, kind of like uh, when Jesus is crucified and he's tormented by the the enemy guards and all that. Well, Saul doesn't want that. I mean, he's going to be dead soon anyway, but he, you know, who wants to go through that as a preface to it? So uh, he um, he tells his armor bearer to uh, stab him to death, and he won't, uh, possibly for the same reason David wouldn't when he had the opportunity earlier. He says, hey, look, uh, you're the anointed of Yahweh. Uh, he, whatever you've done, you have the halo. I'm not touching him. Uh, but, uh, and maybe that's what this guy was thinking. But um, Saul uh, is undeterred, and he just falls on his own sword and dies. Well, that's suicide. But is that's not really... Well, two problems there. That's not what most people contemplating suicide are facing. But I suppose you could still say, well, whoever is committing suicide does not want to face impending awfulness. They'd rather be put out of their coming um, uh, misery. And uh, But then the second problem is... Does the text mean to endorse what Saul did? Just doesn't say. I mean, is that holding up Saul as an example? I wouldn't. I mean, you can't just take a description of what a character does and say, that's it's in the word of God. And so it must be OK. Come on. That's just like the oh, the joke I keep telling uh, where this guy is trying to uh, find out the will of God for him. What should he do with his life? And so he just flips open the Bible at random, trusting the Holy Spirit to guide him. And he just stabs uh, a, a verse at random with his finger, hoping that this will disclose the will of God for his life. But the text says Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> well, uh, it doesn't sound too good. How about the uh, best two out of three? So he tries it again, and this time his uh, finger rests upon the passage that says, Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> Well, well, maybe you want to try. And this time, uh, it's uh, the Last Supper where Jesus says to Judas, what thou doest, do quickly. And presumably, he just decides uh, to try some other technique of divination. Well, you can't just assume if anything is in the Bible that it's uh, what God wants, is telling you to do. It's ridiculous. I mean, that that's uh, not required even by any kind of inerrantist uh, plenary inspiration view of the Bible. It's just crazy. Uh, well, uh, so Saul's suicide given as an example, who knows? This is pretty lame, but it seems to me that in the Pauline literature, there is a heavy dependence upon popular stoicism and uh, that everything is happening to you according to the divine will. And so you should, James too, uh, you should uh, welcome it, these vicissitudes, and realize that the only good thing is virtue. I mean, what's happened to you maybe superficially, though that may be more than skin deep, um, superficially uh, unpleasant, but if if you can use it as an opportunity to 
change your priorities and say, you know, this really, I can't do anything about it anyway, and this really isn't going to harm the real me inside. Uh, maybe I should just concentrate on facing this in a noble way or a Christian way. And uh, that uh, that ought to do it. That's the real good. The other adiaphora, as the Stoics said, it's indifferent. Well, um, what then if you're in a terrible situation? Some of the Stoics uh, inferred that suicide was okay. I mean, you learn, like the Riddler said in Batman Forever, he says to Two-Face, uh, don't kill him, Bruce Wayne, because then he won't learn nothing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, school is out. Classes are over. Uh, if you're in some horrendous uh, pain and suffering, maybe it's time to say, okay, I'm uh, cashing in. And, uh, you know, can, can nothingness or whatever be worse than this? I don't think so. Uh, and uh, why think Paul might have uh, countenanced this? I mean, what I've said so far is sort of vague. Well, he seems kind of like a Stoic, so he might have thought that, yeah. But he says in also in 1 Corinthians that God will not permit you to be tested beyond your limits. But in every circumstance, he'll provide a way of escape. Well, what does that mean? You should just count on a miracle, the cavalry or the Calvary in this case, uh, uh, coming over the hill to save you. That's kind of unrealistic, right? Uh, I mean, didn't happen that way for Jesus, right? Uh, and uh, so maybe what he means is uh, there is a way out, and that's suicide. Some people think he meant that. Of course, there's no way to tell, right? Uh, I guess we could get uh, Shirley MacLaine in here and have a seance or something, but uh, so so uh, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's like uh, it, it's if if there's something really awful, like horrendous pain and so on, and there's no real chance of recovery, you could view suicide as kind of like martyrdom. You can see the time has come, uh, and you're facing the reaper one way or the other. Might as well get it over with. So I don't think it's an unchristian thing. Uh, when uh, Roman Catholics say, oh, no, no, it's a mortal sin because it, you're, you're committing apostasy, essentially, by committing a su suicide because you're saying, well, I despair of God saving me. Uh, nothing's happened. So uh, here, here goes. Goodbye, crew world. I don't think you have to see it that way. Uh, it's, um, it seems to me you can make the argument that suicide is a Christian option. Uh, uh, and uh, But who knows? It really does not come up in Scripture, and if we wish it did, we're in the position of the old uh, scribes who were ha inferring and extrapolating from the text of the Torah when they were interested in a topic that didn't come up there. They would... They would uh, try to isolate the underlying principle beneath commandments that were there and say, can we, how would that principle bear on so-and-so situation? And that's how the oral Torah grew. That's what we're reduced to. And I don't think anybody can dogmatize about it. Ultimately, I think uh, that it's a matter of compassion that uh, you, you, do you want to prolong another's suffering, in which case we're talking about euthanasia or not? Uh, do you want to prolong your own just for the sake of enduring it? I, I don't see what the uh, 
the value of that is. So again, uh, you know, it's it's not an easy thing just to quote a Bible verse on this, even if one thinks that's the way to settle these things. So uh, sounds flippant, shouldn't? Uh, but good luck. Um, Lachlan, uh, I, I very much hope your mom-in-law will uh, take your counsel seriously and do you both a favor and keep on living. Okay, this is uh, Dave from the left coast, as he puts it. He said it, I didn't. Uh, last week I was listening to your neighbor, Bart Ehrman. He's, he's just about an hour or so away in Chapel Hill. Um, in his great courses lectures on the early church. In one of the lectures on the contrast between the rising church and its pagan contemporaries, he described the early Christian church as assuming the worship model of the Jews rather than the pagans. Uh, he described pagan worship as a Occurring mostly at the temple with certain cultic practices and sacrifices. He described Jewish worship as a devotional affair involving prayer, reading, and discussion of scriptures, singing, etc. After having listened at your feet uh, during the Reggie Findlay days, uh, um, <laughs> faithful even through the robo-voice period, it's pretty good. Uh, uh, I have come away with an impression of Jewish temple worship as closer to Bart's description of pagan worship. Certainly the Old Testament has no shortage of, quote, cultic practices, unquote, related to sacrifice and other temple worship ritual. My assumption was Jewish and Christian practice evolved in parallel following the destruction of the temple. Uh, perhaps slightly earlier, but temple worship was much the same as Bart describes pagan worship with a dash of kosher seasoning. I like that. What do we know about the broader Jewish practices before the destruction of the temple and the rise of the rabbis? Was temple worship as I describe, and how did that relate to worship in the hometowns? Uh, excellent point, because uh, since the Deuteronomic reform embodied in the book of Deuteronomy, etc., uh, you, worship was centralized, and gone were the days you could offer sacrifices at the barbecue pit in your backyard, literally. Uh, and uh, no, no, that uh, eating at your house and slaughtering animals to eat was purely secular. I don't want to say pagan, but they were not sacrifices anymore. Uh, and uh, so you to offer a sacrifice, you had to go to Jerusalem. Nothing else really would count. And uh, and then what are you going to do? And and faithful Jews would go to Jerusalem three times a year for different feasts. But when there's no temple anymore, uh, as Tony Soprano would say, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, and of course, what they did was to uh, restrict worship to synagogues, which just means assembly halls. And that there, that's what Bart is describing. You would listen to a cycle of liturgical readings of scripture, and there'd be prayers and um, long, sometimes written out prayers that everybody knew or could follow along with. And uh, there'd be hymns and Probably they'd sing the psalms. They must have remembered the tunes. We don't know them. Uh, and um, 
so yeah, that and there certainly were not any sacrifices. Jewish theology uh, was, had to uh, adapt to no temple after uh, seventy, and they and uh, you had no opportunity for uh, the atonement sacrifices. So uh, what were you just stuck unatoned for? Well, no, they began to say that uh, um, doing good deeds for others would atone for sins. Some thought that uh, suffering with sickness, while not a punishment from God, was a way, a uh, Hindu might say, uh, of working off bad karma. So that was a kind of sacrifice. Uh, Romans seems to be referring to this where it says, do not be conformed to this world, uh, but rather transform your, um, be transformed. Uh, and that is the uh, the spiritual or rational worship. And now it sounds really like stoicism. And uh, yeah, so that's, they, they had to de-ritualize it, you might say. And so did Christians because they were kicked out of the temple around 80 or so CE. And, uh, and so they had little uh, option. And a lot of these people had been synagogue goers most of the year anyway, if they were Jewish Christians. And, and in fact, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, John Chrysostom is telling his congregations on Sunday, look, stop going to synagogue on Saturday. I mean, this is hundreds of years later, and there are still Christians, not even in the Holy Land, who are going to both. Uh, and uh, so it, it must have been pretty similar in both places. And uh, so, yeah, but... I think also, I believe this occurred to me when I was reading, um, it was called Early Christian Worship or something by I. Howard Marshall. The way he described what is implied in the Pauline epistles about weekly worship, it sounds like they had a common meal, uh, the, the agape or love feast, and uh, this was before or after uh, scripture readings, singing uh, the Psalms and other spiritual songs, but also uh, speaking in tongues and prophesying and things like this, healings, uh, kind of like a modern radical Pentecostal church. Uh, and I thought uh, he might as well be describing a mystery cult meeting. And you find uh, this in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 with the love chapter sandwiched in between, where it says, when you come together, Okay, uh, let this guy speak in tongues and a few people prophesy. And uh, if somebody breaks into a prophetic utterance, the first one can stop and let him go. I mean, that's uh, that sounds like a charismatic prayer meeting to me. And uh, even the uh, the uh, acclamation, Jesus is curious, he's Lord. That sounds an awful lot like the mystery cults and uh, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That seems to me only roughly analogous to, uh, let's say, proselyte baptism done only once per customer in Judaism. And uh, despite the Last Supper stories, it has, the Eucharist had nothing to do with Passover. Uh, and it comes directly, I think, out of the religions of Dionysus and Osiris and so forth. So um, uh, Bart is right, but I think there's more to the picture. Uh, uh, the earlier stages appear to be uh, much more uh, wild and woolly, like the mystery cults, or like uh, Qumran, what 
whatever that was. They believed that the angels were present and uh, they were doing on in heaven what the congregation was doing on earth and uh, singing praises to God and all that stuff. So yeah, there there's there was a diversity even in the biblical religions back then, and I think it was uh, reflected in the uh, in the worship. Uh, see here. Uh, okay, here's one I can't really answer. Brett Poe says, what are your thoughts on Neville Goddard's books and lectures? Uh, I uh, have uh, not read them. I've been mildly curious about them, but I gather he was a new thought uh, teacher, and I have some sympathy with new thought, but uh, their treatment of the Bible tends to be allegorical, which is... I like to call a biblical ventriloquism. Uh, so I, I have to plead ignorance. Maybe I'll get around to reading them at some point. But I'm, I'm a little suspicious. I mean, you look at the uh, metaphysical Bible dictionary, which was put together by um, Charles Fillmore, the guy that started the Unity School of Christianity. And no matter what you're looking up, a Bible place name or personal name or whatever, uh, by hook or by crook, they say, well, this is really about the principles of new thought. Eh, you don't need the Bible if uh, you're just going to say that and read it in. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh. There are a couple of uh, very long uh, messages from Bible Geek listeners that are, are like setting forth a hypothesis in great detail and asking what I think of it. Uh, one of them seems to me so beside the the concerns we, we talk about here that uh, kind of in the Velikovsky uh, realm that I, I'm afraid I'm just not going to take the time on that one, though I want to thank uh, the uh, thinker who sent it in. You know who you are. Uh, another is um, I've accepted a longer version of it for the Journal of Higher Criticism, and so that will get out, uh, but I'm not going to – like on the whole, I would prefer – if you um, would ask questions and not just uh, put up a trial balloon um, as if this were the Journal of Higher Criticism. And uh, I'll be happy to tackle it in an email to you, but I am very reluctant to do that on the air just for the, the sake of time. I mean, I have so many that are simply questions. I don't want to make uh, these geeks... Uh, have to wait even longer than I've made them wait so far. Okay. This is from uh, J. Nicholas Fitzgerald, a.k.a. Thought Process. Uh, I hear from him sometimes on Facebook, and, and he is a very uh, sharp-eyed explorer of the Bible, and uh, I'm, I'm welcoming uh, his input. Uh, he says he sent this first to 
uh, to uh, Dennis McDonald, who whose work I esteem very highly, and but he hadn't uh, received a response, which I can understand. Uh, unlike me, uh, Dennis McDonald actually teaches and uh, in a uh, in a school and um, a grad school and has all kinds of duties that I am uh, personally glad not to have. Uh, so I'm sure he's not just being rude. Uh, but uh, he said, well, you know, what do you think of this uh, price? And uh, so I think he's just sort of copied the email he had sent to uh, McDonald. He says... Um, uh, that he's a like a, like me. Uh, he's a tremendous admirer of uh, McDonald's work, and he says, "However, I'm particularly interested in your ideas about the Gospel of Mark and the Homeric epics. In your book, you point out several parallels between the Gospels and the Odyssey." Uh, later, you focus on a passage in Mark, uh, chapter four, thirty-five to thirty-eight, which states. And the, in the same day, when the evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over to the other, under the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships, uh, boats. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was... Uh, now full, and he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him uh, and say to him, Thy master, carest thou not that we perish? Uh, you note that it's mysterious for the author to inform us that when Jesus leaves the shore, there are other boats around him, yet in the ensuing narrative, we don't hear a thing about them. Uh, and there were also with him other little ships. Lollipop. Uh, uh, you then argue, that is, MacDonald argues or suggests that this line is best understood as a placeholder or vestige or leftover detail from the Odyssey, where we're told that there were twelve other boats with Odysseus when he left for Ithaca, though we never hear anything more about them. Um... While this is a perfectly reasonable explanation, my own research on the matter has led me to a different conclusion. It seems to me that Mark 4, 35-38 is best understood as a direct response to a popular argument set forth by Diagoras of Melos. Hope I'm saying that right. Uh, Diagoras is often considered the world's first atheist, though it's clear his thoughts were influenced by earlier thinkers. Writing in the first century BC, Cicero tells of how a friend of Diagoras tried to convince him of the existence of the gods by pointing out how many votive pictures tell about people being saved from storms at sea by dint of vows to them, to which Diagoras replied, uh, there are nowhere any pictures of those who have been shipwrecked and drowned at sea. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Cicero goes on to give another example where Diagoras was on a ship in hard weather, and the crew um, thought... Uh, uh, 
that they had brought it on themselves by taking this ungodly man on board. He then wondered if the other boats out of the same storm also had a Diagoras, that is, an atheist, on board. Hence the line, O ye of little faith. Uh, that's, let me just pause. That's pretty interesting. Uh, if you, if the, way, the way we read this in Mark, usually, Jesus is saying what he means you don't have faith in God to to save you? Uh, yeah, it looks bad, but God, you know, he's watching over you. You don't have much faith in him, right? Well, um, suppose it meant instead, uh, uh, oh, ye of little faith, you're atheists. Interesting. Okay, the parallels between Diagoras and Mark and the Odyssey are undeniable in my opinion, and I believe that my theory meets your criteria of mimetic connection. Um, in order to circumvent the capriciousness of subjectivity, MacDonald suggests six criteria for determining whether a claim for a mimetic like a connection between texts, you know, one being based on the other, is reasonable. They are accessibility, analogy, density, order, distinctive traits, and interpretability. The first two criteria concern the status of the text used as a model. Anti-text, A-N-T-E, anti-text, in quotes. The final four cons uh, concern the later text that may have used the anti-text. Okay, one by one. Accessibility. One must d demonstrate that the author of the later text would have been reasonably able to access a copy of the text being imitated. Was the anti-text well known or obscure at the time of the later text's composition? Let me just barge in with another example. Like there are a couple of places in the Gospels that sound an awful, well, actually several, that sound an awful lot like Buddhist stories. Uh, Christian Lintner and Michael Lockwood have made this astonishingly clear. I mean, not just similar ethical maxims, right? You'd expect that anywhere, but uh, and but you know much more distinctive, unusual things, and uh, so you got to ask, well, is this Buddhist influence on the Gospels? And then the question is accessibility. Can we really envision the Gospel writers knowing about Buddhist texts? And the answer is, well, yeah, yeah, there were Buddhist missionaries in the Middle East a century or two before Christianity. So yes, uh, this stuff could have been known. You say see the same thing. And MacDonald points out, well, yeah, everybody knew about Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. It wouldn't be odd for a biblical writer to know it. Okay. Second, analogy. If one text is, dis is discovered to imitate a certain anti-text, it is probable that other texts have also done so. Are there examples of other authors using this anti-text as a literary model? And MacDonald, a great book, by the way, um, the Gospel of Mark and the Homeric Epics, um, where he shows, oh yeah, people were imitating the Odyssey all over the place at that time, and he gives loads of examples. Um, uh, three, density. The greater number of parallels one can induce between the two texts, the stronger one's case will be for a mimetic relationship between them, that is, a relationship of imitation right, from one to the other. 
Um, I mean, it looks like he did it here. Why, you know, makes it look kind of probable he's doing it here, too. Now, no one of these cases may be provable, but a pattern uh, appears eventually. Like in the book of Acts, there's all kinds of parallels to Euripides' play, the Bacchae, and so many that you just can't really deny that uh, the author of Acts had read Euripides like everybody else was doing. Okay, order. The more frequently the parallels between the two texts follow the same order, the less likely it becomes that the parallels are just coincidental. That's right. Uh, see, uh, fifth, distinctive traits. If there are parallels between two texts, but none of the parallels are anything but uh, one would expect in their respective contexts, then it becomes difficult to argue for a mimetic connection. Especially helpful are non-sequiturs or other unusual elements present in the later text which parallel the proposed model. It is also typical for authors to use significant names to alert the reader to the textual interplay. Like, for instance, uh, 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 Bar Timaeus in Mark and uh, and the Timaeus of Plato and uh, so forth, um, and or place names like the parallels between the Book of Acts and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, and suddenly we think of Paul in Troas, which was another version of the name Troy, even if they're not talking about the same place. And there's other stuff like that that make you wonder. You know, this is just too close for. Uh, for uh, coincidence. Uh, finally, interpretability. A common motivation for imitating an earlier text is to rival that text, whether philosophically, theologically, politically, or otherwise. If one can determine such a motivation in a compelling fashion, then there is a stronger case for imitation. Uh, let me just give another non-McDonald uh, example, uh, just to show that this is not some unique idiosyncratic thing of his. Uh, but as he says, this is generally known. Uh, there's uh, um, a whole bunch of para parallels between the central section of the Gospel of Luke, also called the travel narrative, when Jesus leaves from Galilee to make his way to Jerusalem, and it apparently takes at least three weeks. It would ordinarily not take that long uh, if he wants to get there in any uh, decent time. So it looks like, now this isn't provable, of course, but it kind of looks like it's simply a, a framework for the narrative. Uh, we want to give, uh, we want to create a setting for Jesus to teach a whole lot of things, and it is several chapters. And uh, then if you take a look at the book of Deuteronomy and compare it with uh, the central section, you see that there is an astonishing series of topics uh, from, from Deuteronomy that come up in different clothing in the teaching of Jesus. Often it's just the same topic, but that's enough for it to be striking if it happens enough. Sometimes uh, it's uh, just a Christian version of the Deuteronomic passage, but there are cases where it's pretty obvious that uh, Luke is uh, trying to refute uh, the Deuteronomic original. Like, um, there are uh, 
pretexts given in Deuteronomy that exempt uh, a newly married husband from going to war with everybody else. And uh, and uh, that seems to, and in the series, that occupies the same slot as the uh, invitation to the Great Supper, where um, people are, where, where the, uh, the host sends out the, okay, dinner time, let's go, notes to the people he had invited and who should have been ready, but they all begged off. Gee, I, I'd like to, but I've uh, got to give my camel a bath, uh, whatever, uh, my favorite show on TV, I really can't miss it, uh, or I, you know, I've i got to go to war or whatever, uh, or, I'm, or I'm just married, I don't want to leave my wife. It's so similar. You, you wonder if he's saying, look, this is, uh, the, the Christian view is more stringent and uh, therefore better. And there, there are other examples of that. Oh, like there's one in Deuteronomy where as part of the Harvest Festival, you kind of pat yourself on the back and say, uh, I have done what I was supposed to do, and here I am making my offering to God. Well, in the corresponding um passage in Luke. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, where this guy gets up in the temple and says, uh, you know, uh, God, you're lucky to have me on your side. I tithe my income. I uh, pray and I do this and that. And the other thing is expecting a hand to come out of, from the sky and pat him on the back. Uh, but then he's He's making a fool of himself because uh, uh, God doesn't even bother listening to that. He's uh, taken up with this guy who is so uh, self-reproachful, a tax collector, who won't even come up to show his face in front of the altar. And he's there beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, and, and you can tell uh, this is like a parody of uh, the Deuteronomic thing, though it's based on the same idea. Here's somebody congratulating himself on his fidelity to the Torah, but maybe that's not a good idea. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, it makes more sense once you you see that uh, the Lucan text is hypertext on the uh, the anti-text of Deuteronomy, and there are other examples of that too. Like when the disciples, uh, they're not getting a room. Nobody will give them a room in Samaria. And uh, James and John say, what? Lord, you want us to call down fire on them and barbecue them like Elijah did with Samaritans? And Jesus says, look, you don't know what you're talking about. The Son of Man came to save men's lives, not to barbecue them. Uh, And... uh, that's supposed to make you think of the first chapter of Second Kings, where the prophet Elijah is accosted by 50 guys sent to him by the king of Israel to arrest him, and he calls down fire and roasts them, and then he does the same thing again, and then a third group come and beg for mercy, and an angel says, it's okay now, go ahead, go with them. Come on, I mean, obviously, it's a comment on that, and there are other Lucan ones that are hypertext, uh, criticizing the Old Testament prototype. Uh, well, uh, then uh, Nick says, I just wanted to know what you think about my theory concerning Mark thirty-five thirty-eight and uh, the uh, Diagoras objection. Uh, I like it. It's quite possible or pl- and pl- even plausible. On the other hand, the punchline, O ye of little faith, uh, the problem in the Diagoras story is that uh, the 
the pious people with him in the boat are criticizing him for having no faith, and they think that's why they're in trouble. Obviously, it's a parallel to the story of Jonah. And I kind of go along with um, Randall Helms in his book, Gospel Fictions, that it seems less uh, strained to see this as simply a Jesus version of the Jonah story. And this is another one, uh, I think. But you could well be right. It is a striking parallel. I don't think we can ever really know these things. But the fun of it is to balance and juggle the possibilities, and you're doing a great job of that. Let's see here. This, I think, is from the same Nick. Uh, This time he says a question from Nick. Still not sure about this eye patch business. And of course, you know what he's referring to. Nick Fury, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, Greetings, O thrice greatest geek. May your days last in happiness. Well, they are so far. Recently, I asked you a question about the apocryphal Gospel of Peter, possibly drawing inspiration from the Sumerian myth of Inanna. Your response was generally encouraging, but you rightly pointed out that we don't know of a mechanism by which this kind of transmission would occur. Indeed, is there any way to know how much people in Jerusalem or Alexandria knew about Sumerian mythology? Here are some thoughts I have on the subject. Please feel free to pause and critique at will. Uh, It is generally acknowledged that Alexander's conquest of Persia led to an incredible intermingling of ideas. Greek philosophy was read in the East, while Persian mysticism was practiced in the West. At the same time, Persian scholars of the Hellenistic age still practiced the fine art of cuneiform, so they might well have been aware, if not of Sumerian mythology, then of its Akkadian and Babylonian offshoots. And lots of things... Persians knew or practiced tended to leak westward. The prime example of a major Persian cultural export is Mithraism, and I would say Phariseeism also. Uh, Here's something else, though. I think you're right. Yeah, it's certainly not impossible they'd have known about this. I mean, I always think, wait a second, we know about it. Uh, What are the chances that they couldn't have known about it a couple of thousand years ago? Probably they, they could. Okay. Here's something else, though. In the Apocryphon of John, the secret book of John, the Demiurge's name is given as Yaldabaoth. Certainly, it's a play on Sabaoth, heavenly hosts, or angelic armies of Jehovah. But what's this Ialda business? One theory I've heard is Yaldabaoth is derived from the Aramaic uh, Yalda Bahut, son of chaos, or a similar Hebrew expression. Uh, it's perfectly plausible, but I contend that a Persian origin is also possible. To this day, Iranic peoples, Persians, uh, Azeris, you know, from Azerbaijan, uh, Kurds, Tajiks, Tajikistan and others celebrate the night of the winter solstice as Shabe Yalda. That's S-H-A-B-E, and then separate word Y-A-L-D-A, literally, the night of Yalda. In other words, how dim is the Demiurge? Well, about as dim as the longest night of the year. 
the celebration of Shab e Yalda has been appropriated by Islam over the years, but it definitely existed in the Zoroastrian period and was intended to protect people from the evil spirits, the Deva, roaming the world during the longest and darkest night of the year. Shab e Yalda is celebrated by gathering family and friends under one roof, eating a nice meal, and staying up way past midnight reading poetry. Sounds pretty good. The most often read poet, incidentally, is Hafiz, the extoller of worldly joys and the scourge of religious hypocrites. To make matters even more confusing, in Syriac, Yalda literally means birth, but Syriac-speaking Nestorian Christians also use the word to mean one particular birth, which we know as Christmas, and or nativity, right? That means birth, and we use it for Christmas. And it falls suspiciously close to the winter solstice, too. As always, comments and pontifications on any or all of the above will be greatly appreciated. Yeah, I have to say it, it makes sense to me, and we certainly know there was a significant Zoroastrian influence in uh, sectarian Judaism, like the Qumran scrolls, and in, uh, in, in the Pharisaism, which means Parsiism, I think. So that would certainly make sense. Um, but most scholars do think, and of course that doesn't prove anything, that Yaldabaoth is, uh, uh, is like Iao. I don't know how you say it really, but Iao. Oh, which was a Greek version of Yahweh, uh, and uh, that it does simply denote Yahweh Sabaoth, uh, Yahweh of the armies, the angelic armies. But I do not know. I'm glad uh, you, you told us this. Uh, it's quite fascinating and conceivably could be, but then you'd have to show why the Gnostics would use this for the Demiurge. What would be the connection there? Uh, you can see how Pharisee might come from Parsi, especially because, uh, not just, just the similarities, but because of the extensive parallels between Parsi or Zoroastrian beliefs and those of the Pharisees, unlike those of other Jews like the Sadducees. Yeah, great. Uh, my old pal Slobodan Vukovic, uh, says, what do you think of the Bible critic, Dr. Bruce M. Metzger, who thinks that the New Testament is historically absolutely correct? Uh, and uh, how is it that a biblical critic like Bruce Metzger concludes that the New Testament is historically absolutely correct? Um, well, that, uh, I took a class from uh, Dr. Uh, Metzger at Princeton Seminary, Oh, brother, 40 years ago. And uh, he, is, he was very, very erudite. He was so well-read in all of this stuff, but he was very conservative. Like, for instance, he denies there were pre-Christian dying and rising gods and so forth. And he thinks the, the, uh, the um, New Testament teaches Trinitarianism. I deal with this in a chapter of my book, um, The Case Against the Case for Christ, where one of Lee Strobel's chapters in The Case for Christ 
embodies an interview he had with Dr. Metzger, and I critique some of uh, Metzger's views there. He is amazingly conservative. He's one of these guys that uh, that James Barr talked about in his terrific book, Fundamentalism. Uh, he says that uh, many uh, evangelicals who want to have or be a, a New Testament PhD will... Um, go into a kind of a side field of it, an important one, but one that doesn't get into threatening historical questions. Um, Gordon Fee and uh, Bart Ehrman and Dr. Metzger are all well-known textual critics. Their primary uh, training and interest is in do we have the original texts? We don't have autograph copies of them, but can we reconstruct the original wording and weed out all the, uh, the mistakes and so forth? And um, others uh, specialize in the Greek language and so on. Uh, both very worthy uh, branches of study. But it does seem to me that the scholars are just defaulting to an evangelical pietist background that they first held. And uh, it takes them a long time to make any kind of peace with real historical criticism, and they never go very far into it. Bart, of course, is has done so, though he, he's still, a, somewhat surprisingly to me, um, tending to, to be fundamental, well, I shouldn't say that, basically conservative in his historical judgments. And I think that's the way it was with Dr. Metzger, uh, who was a saintly, compassionate, and brilliant man, no question. I should say the same about uh, about Gordon Fee, who was a professor of mine. Um, I don't, I wouldn't call uh, Bart pious, nor do I think he would want to be called that. Uh, he's pretty much of a good-natured, secular, uh, good guy, a friend of mine, and I, I like him very much, as well as admiring a lot of his work. Okay, uh, Slobodan says, what do you think of the Bible critic Dr. Frederick Fivey Bruce, F.F. Bruce, who thinks that the New Testament is historically absolutely correct? Uh, how is it that a biblical critic like Bruce concludes that the New Testament is historically absolutely correct. I just think, now I've never had the pleasure of meeting F.F. Roos. Of course, he's been gone for a long time now. But I've read various of his books and learned a lot from them, like uh, Jesus and Christian origins outside the New Testament, tradition old and new, the New Testament documents, are they reliable, and various other ones. There's a lot to be learned from him. But he does seem to me to... Uh, constantly stick with the party line, basically. He's willing to make some um, concessions to Old Testament scholarship. Like, I believe I uh, have the right person. I think it was Bruce who was talking to a bunch of evangelical graduate students or seminarians and said that he thought the JEDP theory about the sources of the Pentateuch made a lot of sense, or maybe it was the idea that Isaiah was made of the writings of two or three different people. I can't be sure anymore. Uh, I, I guess it was probably the Isaiah thing. Gordon Fee uh, was willing to say that, yeah, the JEDP business would make some sense. Uh, so he's uh, he's like conservative 
in the same way, but willing to uh, to make to make minor concessions. And uh, he said that on this occasion, some of the students were affronted by this willingness and thought that uh, Bruce was sort of letting down the team. Uh, and it shows it's just a. Um, a kind of default mode uh, that they won't, uh, they're too loyal to their church life to start embracing ideas that would imply the Bible could be wrong in some way or, or not what it's supposed to be. Ooh, see, one more from uh, Casey from Louisiana. When I lived in Mississippi, we always used to call it Louisiana, but when I moved to New Jersey, it suddenly became Louisiana which I do say now, I admit, even though I live in the South again. Okay, I, I recently came across this line in an article about Christian homeschooling. Oops, uh, B Billy Graham's voice might be apropos here, so I'll switch over. Uh, in response to the legalization of abortion in 1973 and the troubled presidency of Jimmy Carter, many of whose policies alienated the Southern conservative Christians who helped put him into office. Evangelicals slowly moved out of their bubble to engage social and political issues. Uh, others took up the challenge of, quote, infiltrating, unquote, secular universities with the gospel. To guard their faith during their sojourn in Babylon, they joined groups like InterVarsity and Campus Crusade. I was the president of our InterVarsity chapter. Um, uh, and steep themselves in the apologetics of Francis Schaeffer, Josh McDowell, John R. W. Stott, and C.S. Lewis. I heard Francis Schaeffer preach in the Princeton Seminary Chapel once, and uh, I met John Stott and heard him speak. Great pleasure. Uh, this reminded me of your own experiences you've shared on the podcast. I wonder if you can take us back to those heady days of the 70s and how Christian evangelists saw themselves in that cultural moment. For example, the American population was so much more Christian then. Was there a confident awareness of the strength in numbers, or was there a feeling of alarm, a sense of losing ground because of the counterculture's gains since the late 60s? Good question. I think they were pretty darn uh, confident. After all, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he loved to say how John Warwick Montgomery, who I've corresponded with, uh, I mean, I, I like to name drop here so you'll know that the context in which I make these judgments and so on. Um, uh, he said he was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And he said that C.S. Lewis was the same way and so on. Uh, it, there was uh, this movement that called the New or Neo-Evangelicals that began in the 50s, early 50s, uh, when uh, people like uh, Carl F.H. Henry and uh, Harold John Ockengay, Bernard Ram, Edward J. Carnell, and others got sick of being derided as a bunch of bumpkin hillbilly fundamentalists because there were loads of bumpkin hillbilly fundamentalists who were just obscurantist and nasty uh, about liberal and neo-orthodox theology, and they were fighting among themselves. I say pre-tribulation, you say post-tribulation. Well, my friend, you're going to hell, etc. They didn't want to be associated with that, uh, partly just as 
professionals and scholars they <laughs> they they didn't like that approach anyway uh, and and some of them were looked at askance by the real hard shell fundamentalists uh, and uh and also they well they wanted respect which people like uh Henry and Akengay uh, certainly deserved, I mean, or George Eldon Ladd. He was one of the great ones of the neo-evangelicals. Uh, and uh, they weren't getting it, but they argued on the basis of presuppositionalism. Uh, there's a great book called Apostles of Reason that recounts all of this. Uh, and I uh, can't think of the author's name offhand. But they tried to... well. The, I guess it was explicit of the same sort of thing Schaefer made his stock and trade, the idea that, look, the facts of science, history, etc., just don't make sense on non-conservative Christian presuppositions. Uh, you just can't explain why there could be um, objective morality if you don't believe there's a God who uh, gave these commandments and built them right into us, as Immanuel Kant said earlier. Two things fill me with wonder, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. In fact, he kind of argued in a critique of practical reason that certain things, you like the existence of God and free will, you can't really know that by rational proof, but it sure would make more sense of life in the world if these things were true so you know which way you're going to go which working hypothesis you're going to pursue well they they did this and i think they pushed it way too far and uh, it it i just uh, it seems to me completely circular and some of the presuppositionalists like cornelius van till uh would gladly admit that they'd say well you've just gotta by faith uh, jump ship and come over to christianity and then you'll see that christ is the logos so real rationality begins with christian belief and um uh, Schaefer used to say, yeah, you, you just don't have any meaning in your life, etc., if you don't have Christ and believe in Christ and the inerrancy of the Bible and all that. I just, I, I once accepted that because it sounded real good, because I wanted my um, teenage beliefs to be true, but I now regard it as just hogwash, I'm sorry to say. That doesn't mean that I'm dismissing these people as worthy of no respect. Uh, it's a tightrope. You know, these people were intellectuals of a sort. They were scholarly individuals. Uh, it's just that it was sort of sectarian or parochial. Uh, and uh, and they're learned men. I, I don't hesitate to call them scholars and, and so on. But I think they were just stubbornly operating from within this paradigm that they nothing would make them leave behind. They had too much... Uh, invested in it personally. Uh, and so there was more. And in the 50s, also, uh, Roman Catholics thought they had it all wrapped up, that uh, the real intellectual position was Catholicism. You can see that in Bishop Sheen and others. Uh, and uh, it uh, it seems to me that that is gone, and part of it is the alienation of youth from Christianity, from evangelicalism, uh, based on the erosion of their fortress mentality by meeting 
uh, non-Christians, fellow workers, fellow students, um, and and so forth, and they see that these these are often as good people as they try to be, and their religious faith uh, is means just as much to them as Christianity does to the Christian, and they just find it difficult to say. I'm sorry, uh, you're going to hell. And and also, this, since they're assimilating more, the, the old uh, rejection of uh, refusal of premarital sex seems to be going by the boards among evangelicals, something I think is a, is a mistake. I think that is ruining the integrity of uh, young Christians these days. Uh, let's see. But also the uh, the evangelical stance on homosexuality. It's the same thing as if it was a, as if gays were members of another religion, um, because uh, evangelicalism is always said, oh, no, no, that's uh, that's wrong. You can't have that. And unless you repent, you're damned and so on. Uh, now. I don't challenge that many who say this say it regretfully, and they really do love the sinner and hate the sin as they viewed it. I mean, I've known evangelicals who uh, certainly are not homophobic. They just uh, disagree on the issue. But a lot of younger evangelicals just can't see it. It just seems like I remember I was not an evangelical anymore, but I was invited over. My family and I were to have dinner at the apartment of an old friend of mine uh, who was gay uh, and his, uh, I don't know if they were officially married, but they lived together and they had adopted a, a baby from uh, Brazil, I think, and later adopted another one. You'd have thought you were with Ward and June Cleaver. I mean, it, it was just what you would expect from any family. And that really made me think, oh, come on. what's? I mean, theoretically, I was okay with it anyway, but I thought to myself, if all the people that are against homosexuality could see this or something like it, they might just adjust to it like they have with the equality of women on the whole in evangelicalism. Back in the 70s, you really had an uphill battle arguing for women's ordination and so on, but now it's pretty much universally accepted in their ranks, just as abolitionism suddenly made it look like it was the more biblical position not to uh, have uh, to be a racist or for the old folks to have uh, slaves and all that. Uh, and this alienates these younger Christians from their churches, and often they just leave when they're... Uh, adolescents or teenagers and of course they always did but they'd come back once they had their own families but they're not doing it anymore and uh and evangelicalism is in big trouble as a movement but another thing that's done it is the internet uh, as josh mcdowell himself admits that now um christian youth has access to the writings of the people that they were always warned not to read and they'd have to, were they really going to seek out writings by free thinkers and liberal theology, theologians and Bible critics? A few did, uh, but uh, they were not eager to have debates either because they'd rather you not hear that stuff lest Satan plant the seeds of doubt. Uh, and uh, it was just superstitious almost, but 
uh, as McDowell and others say, those days are gone. You cannot protect evangelical youth from reading stuff like uh, that I write or that Bart writes uh, or listening to something like the Bible Geek. And this has really threatened the uh, monolithic faith of the younger generation. And um, so they they uh, warn, I'm not sure what, but they, I know uh, he has said, McDowell has said at conferences that this is the big danger now. That uh, And they have debates. They used to not like them, but I've been invited to many debates. Uh, and uh, they figure, look, we've got to make our best showing here um, because, uh, of course, it's mostly evangelicals that come to these things. And we got to show them that uh, they don't need to worry. The jig is not up. Though I must say that in all of the debates I've done over the past uh, 10 or 20 years, I have, I can think of one example, but I've never sensed hostility from evangelicals who ask questions. Instead, they seem to be genuinely curious about views they have never heard before. And I got to hand it to them that uh, they're, they're really uh, doing a bold thing, taking a big risk, but it's one they've got to take. And that shows you that uh, there really is a problem among them of confidence in their position now. They're definitely on the defensive. But uh, good things, I'm sure, will come of that, and uh, i got to hand it to them. Uh, necessity, bread, uh, pretty good behavior there. Well, I'm uh, typically getting worn out, so I'm going to call it quits here. I will try in the next few days to do a human Bible and a Lovecraft geek, uh, and uh, we'll see if I can stick to that, because I've got other stuff to do. Uh, but, uh, of course, this is uh, very high on my agenda. So, become a Patreon patron, and you'll have access to the Human Bible and Zarathustra Speaks. Thank you for being with me this time on the Bible Geek, and I look forward to uh, spending another hour or so with you in the very near future. So, see you then. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.